I am very happy to be joined today by Jessica Tan. Jessica is currently co-CEO of Pingan Group. She is also one of the most distinguished and celebrated leaders in the world. Among many awards and distinctions she received in the last two years, in 2020, Best CEO Award in Institutional Investors All Asia Executive Team Ranking, also ranked second most powerful woman outside of the US by Fortune Magazine. In 2021, Jessica was ranked sixth in Fortune Magazine World's 50 Greatest Leaders List. And I might add that Jessica did all of this in her early 40s. Jessica, thank you for joining us from Singapore today. My pleasure. Jessica, you joined Pingan in 2013 after 12 years at McKinsey where you were a senior partner. And at the time, Pingan Insurance was a, a growing insurance company listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange after a very successful IPO in 2007. And, and since then, Pingan Group has become a gigantic group, still very China-centric, but with international ambitions, and, and maybe we'll come back on that, with a market capitalization that grew fivefold between 2007 and 2019, and which currently hovers around 120 to $130 billion. The group has about a million staff members, more than 200 million retail customers, and more than 600 million users of one or more of your internet platforms. These people buy from you a range of financial services, but you've also developed a number of other businesses and, and ecosystems in healthcare, automobile services, and, and smart cities. Jessica, please give us a quick overview of the range of products and services that the group offers. Thank you, Jean-François. I think, um, as you've rightly encapsulated, we aim to deliver what we call lifestyle and financial services to all our customers. We classify them as the 647 million, what we call app users. And then over time, they also become financial services customers with us. We're about 227 million of them. And the way that we think about this is the following. Financial services is not a product on its own. Actually, financial services seek to serve a lifestyle need. For example, when you buy a, a mortgage, it's not a mortgage. You have a mortgage because you want to buy a house. When you buy a car, you need motor insurance. You need auto loans. So I think we believe that financial services and lifestyle services are intertwined very clearly. And in the market whereby it's so globalized and mobile, mobile-centric, it needs to be more and more integrated together. And therefore, about 10 years ago, we started the journey from a financial services company, we want to say, you know, a financial services and tech or ecosystem company, whereby we can better provide these to others, right? And the way we do this is the following. So our lifestyle services ranges from four areas, what we call FinTech areas. So be these are wealth management, lending, or other purposes, to healthcare, automobile, and then what we call smart city, which involves a variety ranging from elderly home care to um, things that you pay your bills around the cities, uh, city lifestyle. Right? So I think that's kind of how we aspire, we uh, positioning ourselves to be. Follow-up question on this. Some of this clearly is B2C, but some of it is also B2B. Is that right? Uh, yes, we're primarily a B2C company. We About 85% of our profits come from B2C business. We do have B2B business from the standpoint of when we build these ecosystems, it's an open platform 
uh, ecosystem. So for example, when I say in our healthcare ecosystem, we don't just provide our own doctor services. We have an online flagship and the offline flagship. We actually integrate through our tech platform services from the rest of the entire ecosystem, right? From for about 10,000 over hospitals, 10,000 medical centers and stuff. So that's why we offer the B2B service to help these other providers better actually integrate so that ultimately we serve their B2C business. Now, Pingan's revenue and profit growth has been nothing short of extraordinary over the last decade plus. Clearly, being in the insurance market in China during those years was probably not a bad place to be and was provided a certain amount of tailwind. But clearly, your performance was vastly superior to the tailwinds. What would you say were the three kind of key success factors that enabled this success? I think the first one has to be that we grew with a large homogeneous market. Right? So I think the past you know, 30 odd years in China's growth has been spectacular and we were very lucky. Chang'an has been um, founded for about 34 years. In fact, uh, yesterday was our, uh, today actually is our 34th uh, anniversary. We celebrated our birthday uh, Happy this morning. Anniversary. Thank you. Um, so I think uh, that has that's the core reason. We were very lucky is in a big, homogeneous market that was growing. We started off in uh, marine insurance, PNC insurance, which was along the coastal city. So we were geographically well positioned and then expanded from insurance to other financial services and then now to our four parts of the ecosystem. Uh, so I think that's factor number one. Factor number two is that we have a very entrepreneurial culture. Our group chairman is the original founder. You know, for the past 34 years, he's always kept a real entrepreneurial streak. You know, he's not just contented, I think, with Ping An just growing stably on your core business, but constantly thinking what's out next five and 10 years growth, and you have to start cultivating that. And that has kept a culture of, you know, even though we are willing to take calculated risk, right? So that because what constitute, for example, our tech and ecosystem business takes about for the past 10 years to incubate. It contributed about 80 billion yuan of revenue last year, you know, and about 15 billion yuan of profits uh, last year, but it took 10 years to get there. And there's a lot of calculators. I think this is a second thing. The whole company, you know, is very aggressive, but it's very innovative, always thinking about what next uh, to ensure that we continue to grow. And the third one is about people. Compared to many of the other companies, uh, we started off with a very open and embracing culture. I mean, myself being a perfect example, um, you know, I'm ethnically Chinese, but, you know, I've been three generations outside of China. I was born and raised in Singapore. And there are lots of executives like myself. There are even executives in our top 100 executives who are even non-ethnic Chinese. We have Koreans, we have uh, Americans, you know, British, all sorts of nationalities. Some of them don't even speak Chinese. Uh, they have their interpreters with them all along. But, and we've kept that ability that we believe that people are what drives us and we're quite open culture to embrace all types of people internationally and also of even within China from different types of industries, right? Not just financial services, but from all sorts of industry, your background doesn't really matter. That sounds like an enormous amount of diversity with diversity of perspectives, diversity of backgrounds, also nationalities and so on in an organization that, that has remained largely China-centric. How do you make all of this diversity work somehow? Very tough, very tough. With diversity comes, as I'm sure you know, um, lots of different views, backgrounds, way of working, 
and lots of quarrels, lots of quarrel, lots of friction, right. lots of friction. It takes a lot to make this work, and there's always a lot of teething problems. I remember when we first started. I joined the company about ten years ago, so that was the first period when we started a lot of these tech businesses. We hired a lot of non-financial services folks, and every quarter we will have a whole Saturday, you know, of the top guys from various companies,、uh, you know, whereby the whole day session will debate on topic, and it was a pain. Everyone,、uh, you know, there's all sorts of different opinions, you know,、uh, and lots of quarrels and stuff. It took us about two, three years. I think to gradually work out all the kings, and then even today there's constantly new diversity. And I think the key to do that, one thing we are always consistent is that whenever we get together to do something, we are very target and outcome oriented. So we'll make the whole team, regardless of which company, which background you come from, a joint target. If we fail, all of us fail. There's no oh I'm better because you're better. And if you succeed. You know, you succeed because we believe that these、um, friction are best solved through actually working together through a very challenging thing, and then you emerge victorious at the end. I think the the key is going through that process, and then people may quarrel, but at the end of it, they realize, okay, it's for something even better, and they they see the sense of satisfaction in it. I think that's what melts team together. Fortunately, we, it not everyone can go through this. Because、um, you know it could be two three years before some a, a business actually materialized, and and therefore we we also have people who left who couldn't take the culture is a little bit too abrasive, but those who continue to stay for myself, I I've I've learned to embrace the good and the bad parts of it, and go through this kind of fire if you will, and then you become better and better, more and more resilient, and then the next time you make a little bit less mistakes because you've learned to be wiser, and I think that's what continues to kind of hold people together, and I hope that it will continue for the next you know decades to come. And so I hear a real sense of intensity, a real sense of drive, a real sense of conquering. Yes, yes, I think achievement.、Uh, I would say is the right word, particularly because I manage within our group、uh, both the insurance, which is a very mature. Business, but we are trying to kind of innovate by coupling healthcare and others onto it, and also all the tech companies, which you know you're highly volatile.、Uh, you know we have three stages of growth. Some of them you may have to shut down after two three years. I've shut down my fair share of companies because we realize it's not sustainable. But I think you know once you're when doing this, I think it's a sense of achievement. Right, that you've actually made something—not just oh, I made more money or something like that. Oh, I have X group. It's a different something, a different model that you've set, whereby people thought was not possible, but suddenly you became the industry standard. Oh, I created a new stuff. So for our online healthcare, for example, you know, I, I'm incredibly proud what our team has done.、Uh, we want to solve the problem of aging. Right,、um, you know, ninety percent. What China in particular,、um, they age even before they become a developed market, right? So it's very hard to. And with the one-child policy, a lot of the two hundred over million elderly actually stay by themselves, sometimes in different cities, right? And but ninety percent of them likes to stay in their homes. How do you solve that issue? And we created, we spent one and a half years doing this elderly home care service that we couple with some of our insurance.、Uh, we are now in eleven cities.、Um, you know, it's fantastic rapport from the. The customers and their parents,、uh, and that gives you so much joy because we、uh, we create an online butler and we create a tech environment so that actually if there's anything but health or risk that we can monitor and inform their kids on the app,、uh, we create all these services so that can be delivered to their house,、uh, and that there's just quality standards to make sure that the old people are not being frauded by uh, vendors. Uh, so I think you know it's very fulfilling once you see that.、Uh, it's very tough, but as you do more and more, it really energizes you. And one last question: 
on, on follow-up on this, before I ask you about the role of technology, which you started alluding to, what I heard also is a, an interesting mixture of impatience and patience. Because you said on one side, we're very entrepreneurial and, and we want to try new things and, and, and we want to develop. But at the same time, in some areas, it took 10 years. So how do you, how do you reconcile on one side this impatience, but, but somehow you seem to be able to be impatient over long enough periods of time? So yeah. how yeah. do you think of You're this? You're absolutely right. It's just, uh, we tend to be too impatient in the short term. And then we under actually be aggressive on the long term. Uh, so, so I, you know, to strike that balance, I think the key is for us that you have. Uh, we always set long term big growth. For example, healthcare. Um, you know, if you look at all the macro numbers and stuff, healthcare within China, um, both on the payment side, because whereby fifty five percent is paid for by the government is not sustainable, whereby commercial insurance only 7%, right? If you look at all the development, you gotta have higher, the corporates, the employees gotta pay more, commercial insurance gotta pay more. You look at the provision side of healthcare, um, you know, 80, 85% are public hospitals, which are not really incentivized to provide a higher level differentiated service, which you know people gotta need it when they become older and become more affluent. So from a big picture, long-term standpoint, you know healthcare, there gotta be a better solution and this can be coupled uh, insurance with healthcare services that are differentiated for them. So you have to set a goal. We say, okay, in 10 years, this is kind of how we have to break through. Then the short-term type is how. The question is always how. Because there are different models that you got to first make sure that the customer were willing to pay for, yet you're able to deliver, right? All the nitty gritty of the house. And this is where we will get wrong. And you got to kind of try quickly, but fail quickly and readjust and just keep doing that, right? So, so we tend to what we do, once we have an idea that we want to do this, we start off with an initial model that we say, look, let's pull a team dedicated together um, and then try to make it. So the first stage is usually concept kind of validation. We have three stages uh, to make sure that the model works. And we'll keep kind of refining. And then if it passes through and say, okay, there's a value proposition to be here, uh, but if you can't monetize it, it goes into the second phase. Okay, let's think of ways it's creating value, but how do we actually monetize it, right? So we look at revenue, we look at gross margins. Yeah. And then before it then, uh, it, it must reach a certain scale to be sizable. Then we go to the third stage and say, okay, let's make sure that it's profitable so that it's sustainable. So each of our ideas have to go through these three stages, uh, and each one of them is in smaller time period. If you pass through, we'll keep refining and you go through the next stage. If not, we'll find another idea and just keep doing it. But you know, as a healthcare ecosystem, you know, our long-term goal uh, is always there. Um, so I th that's how we try to balance these um, difficult questions. And what I'm hearing also is a very sophisticated and thoughtful innovation management system. I mean, it's not like, you know, you, 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 know, you do it once yes. this way, once that way. You've thought about yes. these three stages. Now, one of, the, right. one of the aspects that you've already mentioned several times is technology. And, and clearly, I guess you could have mentioned technology and, and your developments in technology as one of the three cornerstones. Certainly, I read about the enormous investment that you, you made as a group. And also, those are efforts that you led personally into various aspects of technology. And, and I think you mentioned three, three stages or three phases in the use of technology. Can you walk us through these three phases? Sure. Uh, our first stage of using technology was for our core business, which is primarily financial services. Um, and you know, our thought was that, look, um, 
there's going to be, as the margins in financial services become thinner and stuff, technology needs to play a bigger role, right? That can scale up. So that's, so these are some of the things that we did in this first stage. For example, um, uh, car insurance, uh, motor claims. We process about 14 million car accident claims uh, a year. Um, you know, and in China, because there are 20,000 different cars on mix, we used to need to send people all over, uh, you know, to look at the car, you know, make sure that it's, it's a proper adjustment, this is the right cause where you send to the repair shop and stuff. We spend a lot of time um, in technology building models, and now we're at the stage, it took us about six years to do that, uh, whereby 72% of these 14 million accident claims, you, as a user, you can take your phone, take a video or pictures, send it to us, and 72% of them can be automatically recognized by our AM models, and we pay you immediately. Either immediately, or you can go to our repair shop, we guarantee that this will be within this amount, and we'll pay for it. Um, so that's one example of you know, the first stage. We do a lot of these technology to help our core business, either to improve their sales, reduce costs, or reduce um, you know, control risk. The second stage, we realized that, look, some of this technology can be interesting to create new business model in what I described as the ecosystem point. Right. Uh, we wanted to link, you know, to create these light portals that actually provide a certain lifestyle service that can be coupled with our financial services. At this stage, that's when we have, for example, Good Doctor, uh, which is our online, the, the, one of the largest uh, China, uh, mobile health uh, portal in China right now. Uh, we have Auto Home, which is the largest car portal in China now. And this was what I described earlier, whereby we have some of the lifestyle services, the tech-enabled B2C type of platform. Uh, and then, you know, we'll link the, the lifestyle services with our financial services uh, customers. Um, and, and that has worked out such that now we have, we flipped, we now have 647 million users came from this ecosystem, right? Before that, we only have 50 million, you know, app users. Um, and then now consistently for the past six years, one third of our financial services customers come from the 647 million users because they first use a lifestyle service then they come to us. So that was the second stage. We use technology to create these B2C ecosystem, um, you know, portals, and then to actually acquire customers for our financial services. Uh, then we went to the third stage uh, where we actually realized that technology, each of these companies actually can be, you know, companies of its own right. It's not just serving our core businesses. So we started actually uh, creating them and then um, listing them. So of our 11 tech companies now, four of them are actually separately listed company. They've actually made a sustainable models themselves and they are actually companies in their own right. They may have started out supporting Ping'an one of the ecosystem, but then they expanded beyond Ping'an uh, and then to serve other players as well. Uh, and so we think of technology then now as a as the business itself, it contributes, as I said earlier, about 80 billion of revenues last year uh, and about 15 billion uh, yuan of uh, profit last year. It's about 7% of our uh, profit last year. And then we, uh, we expect that to continue to steadily grow. When you created these technology businesses, at some point you're starting to make available potentially to competitors some of, some of the advances that you've, you've created. Was, was that a little bit controversial internally? Did some people say, no, we, we, we ought to keep these innovations for ourselves? Yeah, naturally. Um, I'll give one connect. I'm actually now one connect Singapore office right now. Um, one connect we started um, six years ago, six and a half years ago, uh, as a fintech company. It was originally serving all our uh, own financial services customers, uh, our own companies, as a competitive advantage. When we first created one connect, um, it was with the view, look, uh, we're just one player within the vast China market. 
I mean, we're one bank out of, I know, thousands of banks. We're only 3% market share, uh, you know, in the bank. Of course, we're 20% in insurance. There's a larger market. And then if you're, if you do well, technology is exportable, right? Uh, it's, it transcends language. I can actually do it outside of uh, China as well. So I think that it started off with the idea and it's an asset-like model, right? I don't know, I'm my own bank, I need to have a balance sheet and stuff like that. Here, you know, I provide tech companies to other financial services institutions, the balance sheet is with them, but I help them do better. And then we charge a fee for service, right? Uh, and that's how we started. And internally, of course, at the beginning, there was a lot of debate uh, and resistance because clearly you're competing now and you're selling to competitors. Uh, but our chairman, and this is why I said it's helpful when you have, you know, chairman as a founder entrepreneur, they see much longer timeframes. You know, he believes that this is a much better way of growth and, you know, is sacrificing short-term gains. But in the long term, when the market is big, uh, you know, it gives you much more uh, possibility. So we persevere. And I'm very proud to say that um, One Connect today serves about 100 insurers within China. So, for example, in automobile, we serve now, uh, besides our own motor car uh, insurance, you know, another 30 of them. So we have half the market share, almost doubling the share of claims uh, going through us. Uh, 680 over banks, not just in China, but in 20 countries um, outside of China. Uh, and they're growing uh, very well. Uh, so I, I'm glad that we managed to persevere uh, in six and a half years, but it does require a lot of perseverance and investment. Right, um, because when you do a tech business, very different types of business have different investment profile. You have to invest a lot at the beginning uh, to make sure that the tech and product is good and stuff like that. Um, uh, but it's something that we think uh, you know is good for the long term and very much needed in the industry. Now, one of the things that you mentioned briefly as as you were responding to my question is is it's easier to export. So, in your core businesses, you have remained very China centric. And again, what I read is you're saying, look, you know, in, in the insurance industry, there's a lot of context and, and, you know, we're super well adapted to the Chinese context, not entirely clear how easy it would be for us to replicate this externally. But, but technology businesses maybe scale up internationally a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about this, about how this could be a way for Pingan Group to indeed grow internationally quite substantially. I think uh, our core financial services business for 34 years, we're in one market. So we have the benefit, I serve the, six, uh, the same 600 of a million app users, the same 200 of a million uh, customers, and all my channels can sell everything, right? So uh, um, for example, my life insurance company, uh, we have now uh, you know, 500 of a thousand agents. They sell everything. They sell everything from life insurance to our banking credit cards, uh, to, you know, if you want to sell your car or buy a car, you know, linked to our auto home, to health medical checkups from our good doctor. So there's a lot of synergies when you're in one market, your channels are all, you know, it can be used for all the products and services, and we're serving the same person. Our tech platform is allowed, even though we have 37 um, different individual legal companies and subsidiaries, they, we are all integrated across the tech platform um, that you can serve one seamlessly. Any of our app, you'll be able to access any of our products and services, then we have widgets that do that. Now, if we go to any other market, doesn't matter how big that market is, you have different customer, so therefore different products and services, uh, therefore different channels. Uh, for us to rebuild all of these requires so much um, uh, local knowledge, and we don't profess 
that you know we have the experience nor the strength to be able to do that. Uh, we believe that the local players, you know, there will be someone like a Pingan or someone else who has elements of that and will much rather take our tech platform, which I said you know is language and market agnostic, to help these players actually do better. Right? Because a lot of our business model knowledge and processes are embedded in the technology platform. So, for example, on the um, life insurance case, we're serving some of the largest, uh, you know, one of the insurers here on how they manage their agents, uh, you know, to improve their productivity. Um, you know, same for our lending platform. You know, we're doing interview uh, online, building different risk models. We're tailored for that, uh, and hopefully that will help us um, and also be more friendly. Uh, towards the other markets because we're here to help as opposed to let me be another player to kind of compete in the local market. As I'm hearing your explanation, I'm also thinking, my God, this, this is there's such a level of complexity in this group now. So many different activities, so many different business models. And, and in a number of, of large groups, at some point it becomes a quasi-conglomerate and, and somehow the whole becomes less than the sum of the parts. It sounds, as I'm hearing you, that you have a strong feeling that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. How do you guys manage this complexity and, and keep it, keep the whole more than the sum of the parts? Our structure is quite simple. So our group, Pingan Group, uh, is a you know just a few hundred people, two hundred or so people. You know, there's uh, three co-CEOs like myself. Um, two of the co-CEOs. Uh, manage the businesses. So I manage our insurance and technology businesses. And then we have another co-CEO who runs our banking and investment asset management businesses. And the third co-CEO is more the functional uh, kind of like finance, uh, risk management and others, right? So the, the lines are very clear on who drives kind of what aspects, right? So I'm responsible therefore for the businesses um, you know, within my uh, kind of portfolio to make sure that they perform and grow well. Right. Uh, so I think that's one line of, and it's very clear. And each of our companies have its own CEO uh, performance. They 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 know how they need to drive this uh, properly. Uh, then is the cross synergies uh, that I talked about, uh, which perhaps is um, you know you and the way that we tend to do this is is the following. Um, we have these uh, three committees, what we call the retail customer committee. We have a group customer committee, and we have a tech ecosystem committee. These three committees are each chaired by one of us. So I chair, for example, the tech ecosystem committee, et cetera, where the CEOs of each of our companies, and this is the horizontal synergies that we're talking about, right? Um, and, and every year, right, uh, so they have common targets. So for our retail customer committee, it's been in existence for about 20 years. Uh, you know, they serve the same customer, right? Uh, and then they will talk every year about deepening the share wallet, who will provide different products and services. Um, uh, one of the things about Pengan is every cent we count uh, to the dot. Uh, so, you know, what's the cross charging price? Oh, if I'm this channel, I sell you this product, I'll get this much commission. And there's a whole mechanism, right, to incentivize to make sure that first there's a view of a group customer standpoint, group ecosystem. And then uh, you set the priorities every year. So each of our co-CEOs will make sure that that is being set. And then there's incentives and, and technology platform, more importantly, because otherwise, if you ha don't have the single tech platform, makes cross-selling almost impossible uh, to, to actually push this consistently. But it takes a lot of work. Each of these committees, as I said, uh, the, the individual one has been existing about 20 years. The group one, perhaps less, about 20, uh, 10 years. And the tech, tech, uh, tech committee is only about 
uh, four or five years, right? Uh, so it takes time to gradually do this, um, but you have to persevere at it, and then gradually everyone will be incentivized to do the same. But it does sound that at the top, there is a strong effort to hold people jointly accountable for joint results. Yes. As yes, opposed to, right. you know, I want to I want to be accountable for what I control, but then you create more silos and obviously you also create more white space between between the units. Here it sounds like there's a group of people you're in charge for for individual customers and 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 we have a shared accountability for it. Yeah, that's right. Quickly on the AI side, you already mentioned one or two aspects. I I, I was absolutely floored when I read the investments that, that Pingan Group has made in, in AI. Uh, you, you have a, a large number of world-class individuals doing breakthrough work to the point that the group has filed, I think, 38,000 patent applications around the world, ranking first in fintech, in digital healthcare, in AI. You also have won 70 international competitions in the last five years, including in image recognition, semantic understanding, deep learning, intelligent diagnosis. We all even have people who publish in top-notch medical journals like The Lancet. So, so an enormous amount of investment um, and, and clearly a number of outstanding achievements. One of them is, is the, uh, the car insurance application, as, as you mentioned, where historically people had to wait Right for the cops to arrive and for everything to be solved. And now, as you said, in 72% of the cases, it's with the phone. Um, you also have an image recognition system that, that identifies fraud. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about that one? Because again, that's, that's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I'll give um, a few examples just to get a sense you know, what we do in AI. I think the first one is to say fraud detection. Um, uh, what we wanted to solve was for small business, uh, small medium business owners, you know, how do you actually give them loans without being collateralized? I'm using a professional junkie word, but you know, because it's very hard for small businesses for you to say how stable is their financial records, right? So usually you say, okay, what do you have is your goods is collateral and then your small amount of money, right? This is a worldwide uh, problem. Uh, so it starts out with that. Um, and then um, uh, we then realized that actually small, medium um, enterprise, when you interview the owners, so there are these, our really kind of 20 year risk veteran assessor. They're very good at assessing who is lying, who's not lying, right? Do they have a real business, not business? And we started off with that, right? We just basically followed about the kind of top 100 a risk assessor. We looked at what questions they asked. We actually compiled them. Uh, and then we also uh, did live collecting it, every of the interview, because um, we do over video or interview, you know, what questions they ask. And then uh, how do they react when you ask these questions? Some, so some of them, when you see, actually, um, their eyes are darting, right? When they were asking these questions about, oh, how's your sales line inventory? You know, because they actually have a little prep notes that someone must have helped them. Uh, prepared. Uh, what the owner says versus that finance controllers say are different, right? So I think we start off with that premise. And then over, I think, a period of almost five, six years, uh, we perfected this expert interview slash image recognition system whereby, you know, it works in the concept of, uh, you know, micro expressions. So we can recognize about 54 different micro expressions. If you kind of um, have a little bit of lying, uh, you know, it, that might be certain responses, either your eyes darting or something like that, um, that corresponds. It doesn't tell you that, 
you shouldn't make this loan. But what it does is that it actually creates these flags to their interviewer because not everyone can be a 20-year risk assessor, right? Uh, that way, even our three-year assessor, they will get the benefit of these kind of, you know, uh, veterans who are doing this and they will flag them. And we're able to reduce, I think about, um, well, 20-odd uh, percent of uh, risk this way. Right, uh, so it's quite uh, important. And we now make about, um, uh, let me divide all these, uh, 100 billion US dollars of loans uh, this way. Uh, and so I think this is something that we've persevered to do, uh, use in the context that we believe there's a strong business needs. And I think this comes back to your overall question, right? How are we able to do all these AI stuff? I mean, we were, we were not a tech company, but, but I think where our strength is, is because we serve so many 600 over million customers across so many diversity of scenarios um, and that we are able to then, there's tons of little problems like this whereby you know, AI is literally basically the, you know, what the person, we're not trying to replace the person, but we're trying to raise the level of the ordinary people to actually be the top guys, right? And we've applied that in even doctors. I'll give an example on doctors. Um, we have this AI um, doctor called Asbot. We named it Asbot, uh, you know, cutely. Because in, in China, with 1.4 billion people, there's only 380, uh, 3.8 million doctors. Right, clearly not enough by any ratios. Uh, and it takes very long to actually train a good doctor, right? Because even the 3.8 3 million, their level of qualifications varies differently. One in Beijing is very different, one in, you know, um, uh, in Chenzhou or somewhere, right? So uh, what we do is we, we let our machine read all the books that they're supposed to do when they study for their medical degree. Uh, it also read about 38 million uh, top class medical journals globally. Uh, and then we have basically lots of real life cases to train them. So it's a few, huge knowledge map, right? And then it's now being used by about, um, I think 1.35 million doctors. Uh, so almost a, a third of them use it. Uh, we've, we've done a little touring test with doctors too. Um, you know, it's quite fun. Actually, we beat uh, most of the general um, the general physicians. Uh, we actually had a cardio, uh, cardiologist um, competition in Beijing two years back, uh, and then last year we had a you know against a diabetes specialist uh, you know globally, and we also beat you know all the doctors um, the machine. Uh, and we hope that this is one another example, right? Uh, whereby I think we AI is not to replace, but actually to improve the level of professions uh, and actually solve real life problems. And I think that's our strength that we can do. Jessica, I want to tell you a funny anecdote, uh, because as I was preparing for this, I was reading, of course, about this Ask Bob system. And I found myself uh, visiting a doctor, and, and there's this uh, relatively young doctor who's asking me a number of questions. And halfway through the questions, I looked at her and I said, this series of questions, are you coming up with them or is the system? Because she was typing. And, and she said, oh, no, 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 we don't have a system that tells us what to ask. But I remember thinking, but why not? Because by now I've told you enough that, that yes. you know, if there was a system, the system would probably be able to say, hey, ask him about this, this, and that. And so then when I asked about Ask Bob, I thought, wow, that, that, that already exists. You guys have done this. 
Yes, I would love to, when um, Trevor resumes, I would love to invite you to our lab uh, in Shenzhen. You can see in real life time, actually the clinical pathways, exactly like you said. As you answer more questions, it narrows down to more and more possibilities, likely to be this or not. These are the questions you should ask. So you can exactly see how you should go through. Uh, and then the final decision is more a narrowing down to the doctor because the final judgment is made by the, the human, right? But humans are less good at processing everything, uh, but the machine doesn't forget. And then the final judgment, of course, have to be made by the human because we are best at actually making a combined judgment. Yeah. I'm going to ask a question. I, I don't know if it's answerable, uh, but I, I, I need to ask. Why is it that Ping An was able to do this and most of the rest of the world not, right? So, so again, you, you've mentioned already, look, we're entrepreneurial. I also heard we don't take no for an answer. We persevere. How can you make this work and the rest of us can't? I think everyone does it to different scale. You know, if you look around, I mean, I used to be a global partner named McKinsey. You know, you look around every country, every industry, you always have innovations and stuff, right? Um, I think, um, you know, uh, for us to have it on the uh, wider scale, I think we were blessed because we did this when we were growing very well. Right. Uh, if you look at some of the more mature markets, et cetera, it's harder for you to invest. Uh, you know, when actually you're you know, actually the best, I mean, I'm sure you know from business school, actually the best time to invest, although it's counterintuitive, is actually when you are really good so you can invest for the next wave. So I think we were, we were very lucky with that, to have planned this more broadly, uh, and therefore the scope is, is more. Um, and then I think the second thing is that um, you, know, uh, you have to take a much longer term mindset. Uh, unfortunately, as public companies, and we of course face that as well, um, uh, but thankfully because insurance, our average policy tenure is 14 years, so we have better visibility of our operating profit. But if you're in most countries, most listed companies, you know, you're more driven by you know, quarterly uh, type of earnings. It's harder sometimes to make investments you know, uh, over a longer term, right? So you know, if you were to, for example, the ASPOP doctor, right? Our, our health scientists is absolutely thrilled. The Ministry of Health actually buys the systems for us to you know, give to their doctors and stuff. But if you say, how much money has it contributed to my, I mean, we make about uh, 20 over billion US dollar profit a year. I would say it's such a drop. In fact, I'm actually net investing in it, right? Uh, so if you have to justify everything individually and then you're, you're run by just the quality earnings, it's harder sometimes to make this uh, move. But if you look at it, as, I, as you and I were saying, this long-term and short-term thing, I think you can actually make this case much better, right? Uh, one of the things I started when I started in my first two, three years at Peng An, because I was running all these innovation startups, I constantly have to justify you know, why are you investing in this? And of course, the, the, there's not everything will be perfect and then there'll be failure and stuff. You know, I said, it's actually the cost, how you look at it, the cost of failure, as long as it's acceptable. So most of my startups, you know, the amount of money we invest, even if after the whole year, I realize actually it's wrong, I need to close it, it's at most equivalent to one day, if not two days of my profit. So I tell my other colleagues, look, let's just work harder. You know, if, I, if we close, we're wrong, you know, give this team a chance, right, to try it for one year, right? If we're wrong, I most I lost one day of a profit. Let's work harder so we make that one day uh, back. But if they're successful, and I just need very minimal. I mean, our success rate is more like kind of forty uh, percent or so. You know, even if it's ten percent, 
right? It, it would be more than, you know, make up, uh, you know, the, the math. If you, so you have to look at it in the right context. And I think that will help executives sometimes make this decision with more uh, conviction uh, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to persevere as long. Now, you've already told us a little bit about the, the Pingan culture. One of the things clearly is entrepreneurial. Another one is we think group more than only uh, our, um, our, uh, our own unit. Um, another one is intense. I just saw you do, we're going to work harder. Uh, this is a company that works hard. Yes, very hard. And in an age where we talk about employee physical and mental well-being and, and you know, let's hold hands and sing songs. Is this pressure on you? Does it mean yes. that you need to recruit certain kinds of people? Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, firstly, because most of our business are in China, you know, it's also a bit different uh, kind of in different parts of the country, right? I mean, I've worked in the US, you know, Europe, different parts of Asia. There's always different norms and practices, if you will. Right? Uh, so I think there's adjustment to that, right? Uh, so one connect that where I've said uh, in Southeast Asia, we are now about four years here. We still have conflicts. Still conflict, different between very simple things. I mean, when I was at McKinsey, I have absolutely no uh, number of days on vacation. I mean, as long as you do your work, um, who cares how many days of vacation you take? Uh, I can take three months off, and you know, I'll be fine. You know, uh, when you're managing a million people in China, you have very strict number of days of vacation, right? So even small little things like this uh, can cause very difference. Uh, and then, as you said, uh, the new generation too. Uh, you know, have different ways of uh, values, right? Uh, my daughters uh, would think that I'm crazy to spend so much time working, you know, constantly. Um, uh, so I think that balance needs to be struck, you know, uh, in different contexts. Um, my belief is that uh, I think it's about um, the values and the outcome. So, you know, when I recruit people, I interview about 100 people a year. Roughly uh, every year, so I I made a point to interview not just my one down direct report, but two down sometimes even three downs if it's for key position. Um, and a lot of things that I look for is not just do you have the hard intrinsic skills or not. It's kind of more your soft intrinsic skills. You may have different kind of uh, values and how you do. So I have my own uh, nuances. You know, weekends before COVID, I have to be back in Singapore. I don't care whether it's you know I, I've done that for 20 over years, uh, my family's in Singapore. Um, and so, but you know, as long as you can respect that, but it's about what are you chasing for? If you're just looking for a job that just kind of nine to five and going back, then probably this is not the space for you. But if you're looking at a place, look, I'm gonna spend the way I tell my daughters, like, I spent two thirds of my life on work. <laughs> and you know, I wanna make something meaningful of that time. I can go in and clock the time or I can actually do something that's meaningful for being paid for it. And I think if if you have if anyone has that kind of mindset, then it doesn't matter what kind of uh, your own balances and priorities, we can work around it, right? Um, uh, and I, I think that's the kind of soft type uh, of uh, kind of uh, qualities that I think uh, that I look for personally. One last question before I ask you two or, two or three more personal questions. We mentioned earlier the diversity of perspectives, of nationalities, and so on. There is another dimension of diversity that is of concern to organizations all over the world, and that's gender diversity. There has been uh, a certain amount of progress across countries, more in some than in others, but there's been some progress. But nonetheless, women tend to remain underrepresented at very senior levels in organizations. Um, I know this is a topic that you have been interested in over the years. What are some of the things that 
organizations and or governments and or individuals can do to accelerate the progress? I think there's typically two types of problems that needs to be addressed. Uh, I love that. I think one is around uh, sometimes written or unwritten norms. And this, I think, and a lot of it uh, may be actually unwittingly uh, doing leftover from eon years, right? Uh, so simple things like, um, um, uh, you know, so for example, when I uh, first started, um, uh, it would have been, uh, so, so the way that people like to play golf, let's say, I don't play golf. It may not be a gender thing, but it has certain norms to it. Um, and then um, as a, you know, different, because women participation for us actually is, you know, only happened in the past few uh, decades increasingly. So these sort of norms sometimes preclude, you know, wittingly or unwittingly for stuff. Or even things like promotion. Sometimes, you know, when you have, um, you know, women uh, employees, but you take maternity leave. So that means in some countries could be three months, four months, or sometimes perhaps longer, then you're, you're, you might be left out in promotion, career and stuff. So these are certain things that have been left over the years. Um, and I think in, uh, it needs to be more cognizant of it because rules are set by people over time. So I think it's helpful that many of the companies, uh, you know, like ours and others, have committees whereby people kind of speak out against this and then they try to change over time to evolve. And sometimes actually it's not just for women or not women, right? I mean, I remember in McKinsey, actually our... Um, uh, our Swedish office, Finland office, etc. You know, basically, it's for men and women. They want to do part time. How do you make a part time thing work, right? Because uh, everyone has different priorities. Uh, so I think that's one set of issues. As more companies become aware and don't make a gender or whatever type issue, and just norms to be more inclusive, I think you know this will gradually improve. Uh, I think the second one is then by people. Uh, you know, each one of us as we become leaders. Uh, you know, how do we also encourage people not to be discouraged by certain things? I've never, uh, I've never thought that gender was an inhibiting factor. Actually, I always thought that is a um, uh, is an addition bonus point for me because it's so hard. It's so hard for people to say no to a to a woman if I ask it the correct way. Um, and I think I said that to my girls too, right? Um, but I think not all um, might feel that, right? Some might feel oh, but. Um, you know, uh, I may not want to be like, uh, you know, senior because it would put in so much time. Oh, I would like to have time for my family, etc. I mean, I, I've always put that as, you know, you can, uh, these are things that the same for everybody. Um, and you can shape how you, and you, sometimes you can ask for it and you do whatever, right? So when I, when I first made, had my first kid at McKinsey, I think I took like half a year of maternity leave. I said, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to go and do that, right? It hasn't really stopped my career per se. Um, you know, I think, I think being cognizant that different people and, and individually also, you know, asking or shaping something, um, uh, I think it's also helpful uh, so that it doesn't become an inhibiting mindset and sometimes. Understood. Now, thank you for this. So let me ask one or two personal questions. Uh, one of them is, is this. So, so obviously, you now have a, a wide range of, of responsibilities. Uh, and, um, and now you've just hired me. And I'm starting to work for you today. Uh, and ideally, we have a few minutes. And, and during those few minutes, you're going to tell me, um, A, kind of what you expect from me. But also, you're going to tell me a little bit about yourself. You're going to say, look, you got to know... If you want to be successful with me, you've got to understand I function this way and this matters to me. Uh, what would you tell me about, about what matters to you and how, and how you're going to come across to me as a leader? So typically, um, 
most of my teams know, um, I have two characteristics um, you know, that's, very, that's very distinct. The first one is that uh, around work issues, I'm unforgiving in many sense. Uh, I, I'm very aggressive. I ask a lot of questions. I'm very numbers driven and I chase for what I think is the right answer. Right. Uh, so I, I don't like to oh report and do this, you know, oh, I did better than last year. I always try to, and this is perhaps the McKinsey in me. I've been trained for 13 years to think like this. What is the right answer? Right? What's the maximum value, et cetera? And, and I tend to be very resilient in trying to get to what I think is the right answer for the business, for the organization. Um, and, and I'll be very blunt and I won't hold back saying anything in any language. Uh, so, so my, uh, my, my Chinese colleagues at the beginning have to find that my, my language perhaps is very direct and don't have flowery language. Uh, I joke and say it's because my Chinese is not that great. So I translate directly, uh, in my mind, but, but this is every people start to accept. I don't mean to target the individual per se, but I really just want to find what is the right answer. Um, the other thing, so so as long as you know we are facts driven and you know etc., I th you know you you do fine by me and we'll work together very well. Uh, I think the other thing that is uh, you know a spe uh, special about me is then uh, it doesn't mean that I don't care about individuals. Uh, so it's quite. It's quite a dichotomy in some sense um, uh, that but I do really care for making sure that if you do right thing for the organization, that I that it naturally means good for the individual. So I try to do basically, uh, I do care about development of our people. Like I said, not only I do the 100 interviews, um, but I think for my, uh, let me see, I have to count, uh, top 200 people, uh, I know them individually. Are, you know, I write handwritten birthday cards every year, um, but also that they can reach out to me anytime they want to talk about their development. And I try very much to chart development for them, right? I will give feedback directly. Uh, you know, if after a meeting, sometimes I will pull the person, I'll even call the person. I say, okay, I think you should have done better here, not better there. Uh, you know, after a few years, I realized they're quite good here, but I think, you know, to progress next time, you know how to do this. So I, I, I hope that, you know, because working with me and in Hang On is a very hot culture because we are so driven and stuff. Uh, but I would like it to be rewarding, not just for the organization, but for individuals who also, you know, have ambitions and who wants to achieve something. Uh, so I think these two things were probably the most uh, kind of distinct features um, that uh, people used to describe me. I guess what I'm hearing is hard on issues and soft on people is a way sometimes this this combination is described at imd we call yes. it care to dare so there's a daring side and that's, that's your good. that's a good one that's your that's your challenging aspect but there's also a caring yeah. aspect and care to dare mean that we can be both at the same time even though it's a little bit yeah. counterintuitive that's a that's a good one when i made the uh, global partner at mckinsey my team gave me a um, lightsaber <laughs> which is the dare part and the teddy bear for the care part. Uh, so yeah, this is a good way of uh, encapsulating that. Last question. Um, for you to remain at your best, given the, the cognitive demands on you, the emotional demands on you, the energy demands on you, uh, I'm sure that it doesn't come without some effort and maybe also some practices. Can you share with us some of the, some of the practices that help you cope and, and in fact that help you thrive? It's very important um, because uh, you have to you can't bitch to someone. Uh, we have we have to move from a full day, um, you know, fourteen hours or so. You have to move from different topics. Um, you sometimes have to make very hard decisions in a short amount of time, and you gotta at the same time not you know 
still inspire people so that you know, you're not just going around scaring people. And so you have to maintain this balance. Um, uh, and so I find kind of personal energy very important. Uh, we have to be very uplifting. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, I have things that I do, like I, I, li I like to run, I do yoga, I like to read. So I have a lot of sets of personal things. I Every night before I sleep, I actually watch sitcoms uh, just to laugh away and, and just sleep. I can memorize all the sitcoms, in fact. Uh, I think these are personal things to kind of keep the balance so that you are not overworked. Uh, you know, over the years, I balance that out. I think the second thing is that, um, I've uh, you know, we don't always are at our best all the time. Uh, you know, there are meetings where I say, oh, I wish I could have not kind of scale this person. Uh, you know, I wish I could have done better and stuff. Uh, so I usually rate myself. I rate myself after every meeting. I rate myself after uh, every day uh, and I reflect back on the day and what could I have done better just behavior wise. Um, you, know, I, you know, I hope to be a tough but inspiring person because, you know, it's not my intention to put anyone down stuff. Um, I think as executives, um, you know, you have to make tough decisions, but it's for the business and organization to be sustainable, right? So, um, so I want to do it in a way that is more palatable and some of the cultural differences you're talking about, I'm also adjusting, uh, you know, uh, variously, but I think it's something you got to be very open uh, and receptive to it, uh, and your impact on, on other people. Um, you know, so sometimes I do joke, um, I, I remember some, because I'm so demanding and people are so difficult to answer my questions about numbers because I'm very good with the numbers. You know, I remember seeing one of the, um, you know, a young staff officer, his hands were shaking as he was plugging in the projector. And then I said, oh, it's okay. I'm not going to bite you or eat you. You know, so I usually ask for your name and stuff to try and cool, to balance a little bit. Um, so, but I'm still, I'm still improving. I think people who knows me over time, I think then becomes easier. Um, you know, uh, but but I hope to I hope to do better. My my daughters tell me I have much to improve. <laughs> Don't we all? But 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 it sounds like you're mindful of it. You I was I was struck when you said I'm rating myself and and I'm, and I'm thinking back. So so in spite of the busy day, you try once in a while to take a minute and go like here I should have done this here I should have done that. Yes, that's right, that's right. Because I think frankly, at all my at my level as a co CEO. We ourselves, are, our contribution, the impact comes from motivating people to do the right things, right? Um, it's our ability to influence people that's important. I mean, as a leader, you need to set the right direction, which is the analytical mind. I, I make sure that we get the right answer and you don't get all the people to do something that's wrong. Um, you have to find the right people so that, because they're the ones who do it. And then the most important thing is you've got to motivate and you know, get them to do it, right? Because it could be the right thing I could find, but, but if they don't want to listen, they want to do, you're, you're, you're nothing. Uh, so I think that's a very important thing that we, we have to be mindful of. Jessica, I want to thank you for your time. And I want you to know that I not only don't I have any doubt that you're inspiring within Ping An Group, I tell you, I'm finishing this discussion fully energized and ready to go to my next step. Thank you so much for thank your you. insights, for your energy. And all the best to you, of course, personally, and of course, to the Pingan Group. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jean-François. I look forward to seeing you in person someday. Thank you. <laughs>